thankful that we're all here together today. Uh, we're going to be in Jonah. And so, Jonah chapter 4. This has been a quick journey through Jonah. But I love the story of Jonah. Um, it's one that we're familiar with. We've said that from the beginning. This is a story about the prophet who's in the, the belly of the, the great fish or the big fish that we normally say is a well, and it's in these children's stories. I've, I've always been fascinated by the story. I've always loved the story, but I've always loved the biblical story too, with chapter 4 thrown in there. And that's the, the one where most people are not familiar with chapter 4, and then whenever you read chapter 4, you're wondering, well, what do I do with that? Because it actually ends with a question that's never answered. Or it seems to not be answered, and I'm going to tell you it is answered. And we're looking at that at the very end. But you see the question mark at the very end of chapter 4. The Lord poses a question, and it doesn't seem like it's answered, but in God's goodness and grace and His presence with Jonah in the moment and in His, his compassion that we've seen displayed, I'm telling you the question has already been answered. Okay, and that's what I want us to kind of consider at the very end. But this, the book of Jonah that we've preached through this month is not really a book about Jonah. I mean, Jonah is someone that we can look at, and you're like, well, it's called Jonah. It has to be about Jonah. Take all the epistles. Take all of Paul's letters, right? He's writing to, he's writing to the Philippians. Well, it's not really about the Philippians. It's really about God. Right? The Philippians are the ones who are receiving it. This is a story that says it's about Jonah, but it's not really about Jonah. Look at the first, I know you're in four, but look at the, the first five or six words of this entire book. Chapter one. Now the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. And that's what Jonah is. Because the way the whole narrative starts is, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go. And while Jonah seems to be at the center of the story, God is in absolute control and he's the main character, and he is the main hero of this story. Jonah is just someone we can watch. Jonah is someone who, by contrast, shows us how great and compassionate our God actually is. Because Jonah functions a lot like Ricky does. Jonah hears the plans of the Lord and basically says, I don't like that plan. Let's try this plan. And that doesn't work out, so the Lord disciplines him. And so then he repents, and Jonah gets another shot, and then we're going to see Jonah's heart is actually really bitter because he still doesn't like God's plan. And I've found that, that I function in much the same way. Praise the Lord, he hasn't swallowed me in the, the belly of a great fish and taken me to the ocean depths, but he has gotten my attention in many other ways whenever I've chosen to rebel. I don't know about y'all, but with uh, coronavirus, with different health issues going on, there are a lot of people around me who are just hurting. Like, they, there's health issues going on, there's stressors in this way, there's just a lot of hurt. And sometimes God uses those moments to refine us. They might not be matters of discipline, He might not be disciplining them through their health, but those are moments whenever God can really get our attention, though. And that's what a, a friend of mine shared with a, another friend of mine in a text message. Basically just said, you know, it's in moments like these whenever God draws us really close or shows us how close He is. And I see that through Jonah, that through all the ranges of Jonah's uh, rebellion and, and disobedience and displeasure with the Lord, through all that Jonah goes through, the Lord is never far from him because Jonah is his. 
Okay, so I want you to remember, remember that, that, that there is a truth in life that, that there will be pain and suffering. I want to I address this real quick. I want to kind of divorce it a little bit from Jonah. Jonah is enduring a lot of hardship because of his disobedience. But you also need to understand that just because you endure hardships doesn't always mean that you've been disobedient and that the Lord is punishing you. Because what we can take is a truth of Scripture from Jonah, and we can over-apply it into situations that don't actually pertain to us. I'm the world's worst at that. Um, one of my mentors um, and a, a previous superintendent at Union, I was sharing a verse that was just really bothering me one day. And uh, because I was applying it to me, and I took it in there to him, and he's like, you focus on the wrong verses. That does not apply to you. I'm like, well, it could. He goes, it does not apply to you. And I'm like, but it could. Like, it could. He's like, and he's like, find another verse. I don't like that one for you. But, uh, and he was right, right? So I think that there's also that danger whenever we look at Jonah, and we see that here's someone who's been disobedient because we know we're going to be disobedient. But then here's suffering that he endures. We might think that all the suffering that we see is a result of someone's sin and, and disobedience. You remember what the, the apostles asked Jesus? Who sinned that this man was born blind? And he said, neither his parents nor him, but that God may be glorified. So as we move into the end of Jonah, I am going to, to preach it as I believe it's presented and have pastoral moments with you, but at the same time, don't over-apply what does not apply to you. Just take the truth of Scripture as well. At the same time, apply the truth that we see in Scripture and know that if we've been disobedient, it is by His love and grace that He will discipline us and that when we repent, He will deliver us and He will commission us again to go out. Okay, so with all of that said, Jonah 4 offers us a few things. The first one is it's going to give us a course correction for how we look at the book of Jonah. And I've already addressed that a little bit, but most of us and most people are familiar with Jonah in this way. He was a prophet who said no. He was swallowed up by a big old happy whale that we see jumping out of the water, and then we see him down in the ocean depths, in the belly of the well, and in the kids' books, which most of us, we would say, I'm past the kids' books, but we still have that same narrative. In the belly of the, of the well, he prays, and then God spits him back out on dry land. He preaches to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. The end, always obey God. That's the moral of the story. Right? The course correction that, that Jonah 4 affords us is that this is a historical story of a real man, and the story doesn't end with Nineveh's repentance. It ends with Jonah being displeased that God would not punish them. It shows us an imperfect picture of a man before a perfect God who desires that all should be saved. So it changes our view of the book of Jonah. It's a fuller story. Like it's a bigger story and it's a rich story. And if we're, if we're sensitive to it, Jonah chapter 4 really challenges us as well to check our hearts. So it offers a course correction for us. Number two, it's a view of a completely imperfect and selfish prophet. You know what Scripture says prob probably, but you and I are a priesthood of believers. We tend to think, well, the pastor is up there. We don't use the word priest a whole lot in the Baptist denomination, but it's the same, same idea that we are a priesthood of believers, that we're to do ministry, that we have the right to go before God. It's not just the pastor up there who has access to wisdom and knowledge and power and might of the throne. 
but you do. You are a priesthood of believers, church. You have full access to all the wisdom and knowledge and power and might of God because of the blood of Christ. That's why we have Corinthian days um, whenever we're sharing what God has been doing because Scripture shows us that when the body comes together, that there should be one who has a hymn and one who has a praise and one who brings this gift and that gift. Like We believe in the priesthood in that way. But we also need to consider this, that just because we're a priesthood of believers does not mean we are perfect. And just because they were prophets of God does not mean that they were perfect. Jonah, absolutely imperfect. If you have not seen Jonah's imperfection, then we have recordings of our sermons, and we try and do a pretty good job of showing you what Scripture says about Jonah. Even when he repents in chapter 2, and then we read chapter 3 and 4, we're sitting there going, what's the dude's deal? I mean, come on, for crying out loud. But we also saw that in the Apostles. And we saw it in our lives as well. Anytime that you and I see, see a prophet, a priest, a king, a people in Scripture, every time we see man, man is riddled with sin, we are prone to be wayward. We are prone to the depravity that's within us. And Jonah does a pretty good job making sure that we understand that that's who we are as well. It shows us a completely imperfect and selfish prophet, and get this, that God still uses for his glory. There's a, a spoken word um, artist that I like. His name's Propaganda. And he had this one quote, um, and he's talking about actually the Puritans, and in talking about them, because a lot of people uphold the Puritans, and I love the Puritans' theology, but then you get into the Puritans' life and, and other ideologies, and, and people critique them in other ways. But here was his point, that God chooses broken sticks to make straight paths. And I know I didn't quote that exactly the right way, but I want to make sure that it was very clear that God uses crooked sticks to create straight paths. And so it's true of Jonah, and so it's true of you and me. So we don't read Jonah with a feeling of defeat. We read it, I hope, with a heart of repentance of, Lord, help me to not be that way. And then number three, it offers us a picture, y'all, of a completely patient and compassionate God. That's what Jonah shows us. I mean, have you ever had that prayer, God, what can you do with me? I'm just a total failure. I mean, I feel like I mess up here. I feel like I mess up here. I feel like I've, I've come and rededicated my life like 73,000 times. What in the world can you do with me? Have you read the book of Jonah? Where a completely selfish and imperfect prophet is redeemed by a perfect God and used for his glory and 120,000 plus people are saved? We're really quick to disqualify where God has already qualified by his blood. And so we see that he, that God, in this, that God is the only redeemer. He's the only savior. He's the only patient and good and kind one. His loving kindness extends to a wicked and brutal nation. And he accepts their repentance. The hero of the story is not Jonah because he finally became obedient. The hero of the story is God because he never relents in pursuing us. Let's read Jonah chapter 4. The end of Jonah says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He's talking about how Nineveh repented in the last verse of, of chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and said, to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you, well, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's how Jonah ends, with a lingering, looming question. So let's see if we can, my, my desire is to honor the text and make it understandable for us and applicable. Three sections here. If we break it into three sections, I think we'll move at the right pacing and a right understanding of what God is building in his word. Because he asked twice, do you do well to be hungry? hungry. Do you do well to be angry? Ask it twice, and then he says, should I not pity? The third question is a step back from the questions of, are you right to be angry, to should I not pity them? It's a perfect way to end. And we'll, we'll, I'll address that. Why, why is it a perfect way to end? We're just not there yet. So here's the source of Jonah's displeasure and his his rebellion, I know we've alluded to this in previous weeks, but look at this, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, repent, and relenting from disaster. In other words, here's why Jonah wanted to flee to Tarshish. God, I knew you were merciful. I knew that you were going to do this. You're going to be patient and kind with them. You're going to abound in your steadfast love. You're going to relent from disaster if they say they're sorry and mean it. That's what I didn't like, and that's why I fled. There's the heart of your prophet right there, right? I mean, let's get real. How messed up is that? Like God's prophet, who we tend to hold in high honor. I mean, I think of Isaiah, you know, and I've had these moments where I'm like, man, it would be cool to have coffee with Isaiah. Like, I want to sit with, I want to sit with Paul. Like, I want, and I think of, the, of all these heroes of the Bible, whenever a true account of who they are, you know, it's probably less than flattering whenever we really get down to it. We have to remember that they are but men. Holy men of God, but yet men. And so he says, I'm not going because they don't deserve it. And I know what you're going to give them. And it's not happening. Jonah's disobedience really comes down to this. 
He didn't like the circumstances or the situation. He didn't like the recipients. So he didn't like any of that. He was disobedient because of the circumstance, rather than church having confidence that a holy God knows what he's doing. And the same thing is going to be true of you and me. We're going to be put into circumstances and situations and talking to recipients that maybe our heart in our flesh is not in it, that we might not like the circumstances, yet we don't get to choose the circumstances that God has constructed. We need to have confidence in who he is. All of Jonah's displeasure and all of his running to Tarshish instead of going to preach to the Ninevites was simply because he did not like God's plan and his circumstances. And you know what? God still got his way. Here's what Jonah's referring to. Um, there's some good verses I think it's, it's good for us to be mindful of. If y'all were turned to Exodus chapter 34, so you're going to be going to your, further to your Old Testament, further to the left. Exodus 34, verse 6. And by the way, if I ever send you to a verse, and it's not the right one, you just wave me down and tell me. I love the panicked look in your eyes whenever you're like, that's not it, who's going to tell me? Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Y'all hear the language of Jonah, right? A Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, understanding the fullness of that verse is a, is a completely different sermon. But you heard Jonah. Jonah said, I knew you would do this. He says, I knew that, that you were a gracious God and merciful. You see that in Exodus? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see that in Exodus? And relenting from disaster. You see that in Exodus. What the Lord proclaimed to Moses as he, as he wrote those tablets, as God constructed and wrote those tablets for, the, for us, what he revealed about himself is exactly what Jonah knows. This would become, what you see in Exodus 34, would be a common confession for Israel. This is what they knew of the Lord. They knew, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. The statement from the Lord about himself told Israel and us everything that we need to know about who he is. You go through there, I mean, and you look gracious, merciful, slow to anger, but you also there at the end see he will judge sin. He will not clear the guilty. I mean, all of the goodness and the justice of God is in that statement. And it, it, became, it became common for the Israelites. That's why Jonah spouts it out there. Jonah says, I already knew this about you, and I know it's true. But it can't be true for them. So that's what he says, is that he fled for that reason. He also knew this. Turn now to the, the New Testament, 2 Peter. So you're going to go far to your right, 2 Peter 3.9. Jonah knew this about the Lord. Even though 
2 Peter was not written at the time of Jonah. He still knew the truth of 2 Peter 3.9. And it's good for us today. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, and Jonah knew that, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I struggle with some theologies that I like a whole lot. Right? Some theologies that, that I hold very near and dear to my heart, but but I struggle with those theologies as well because good theology preached and practiced in the wrong way is bad theology. But we can, because we cannot neglect what Scripture says, that the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you can imagine Jonah in that moment, and he's going to the Ninevites, who are the Assyrians, and they are, they're violent, they're ruthless, they hate Israel, they keep coming against Israel. It would be right and just if I were God's people in that time to say, why will you not utterly destroy them? If you were for us, God, then why will you not utterly destroy them? So Jonah gets a message, go to Nineveh and tell them to repent because I'm going to destroy them. You know that there had to be a moment of joy because he's going to destroy them. But I can't let them repent. And so he tries his own way. But Jonah knew in his heart what we also know and what we've got to understand. The desire of the Lord, y'all, is that all are saved and that all reach repentance. I struggle with the theology of, uh, uh, I think, a good balance of theology that, that God does elect and God does predestine. But I also struggle with that aspect that there's man's responsibility in that mystery. And that's what the men are going to have fun are reaching into this week. We're looking forward to that discussion, and we're going to do it with grace and mercy. But at the same time, that theology that is meant to bring him honor and glory and praise goes in another direction to where you hear some would say, well, we don't need to go on missions. We don't need to go serve. God's going to save who he's going to save. God is going to save who he's going to save, but he chooses to use men and women like you and me who are faithful to him to spread his glory. There's a lot more than just Romans chapter 8. There's Romans 9 and Romans 10, which commissions us to go. How does that fit here? It fits in this way. If we're not careful, we think that we get to be in, in control of, of God's salvation. Also, there's, there's a flip there too. God's desire is that all would reach repentance and that all would be saved that not one would perish, but here's the reality. That's God's desire, but church, will everybody reach repentance? No. But may it not be said of us that we were disobedient in going to tell them. He knew God's desire. Therefore, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He knew that whenever God says all would reach repentance, that that's his desire. He knows that God's going to have what he wants. And if God is telling him to go preach repentance then God's probably going to do a pretty powerful work. I want to keep going. But I, I do want to clarify that that's the Lord's desire. You need to know 2 Peter 3.9. Do you know why you were saved? Do you know why you are a Christian right now? Because the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, church. But is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, and therefore he did not relent with you. All right, I want to go um, on to verses 3 and 4. 
Jonah said, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And I don't think I can match the right tone of the Lord there. Um, I don't know if there's a compassionate pity there or if it's a really sarcastic, are you kidding me? I don't know, okay? So, so you fill in there based on the conviction you have, but I will say I tend to find that when the Lord is, whenever I read the Lord's words, I tend to have like this very, he's always composed and regal and speaks with, you know, that high composure and is balanced. I don't know. I'm just wondering if right here he's like, seriously? Like, it's better for you to die. Like, are you, are you good being angry over this? I just wonder if sometimes he doesn't speak in the tone of voice that he knows we're going to understand so much more. Sorry? There you go. Yes, and he's going to call him out on it. Okay, so the Lord's going to refine him in this process. Okay, there's, there's two reasons that he could be angry. I really like John MacArthur, but I'm going to disagree with John MacArthur on something, okay? So that might not sit well with some people. But John MacArthur says it's probably or maybe for this reason. Go to Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. Why am I having you go to this one if I think John MacArthur's wrong? Because this is a good one for you as well. This is one of those you want to underline, highlight, and go, oh man. Okay, so Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. And I think that what John MacArthur's trying to do is really balance out why in the world would he be so angry over this? I think there's two reasons that he could be angry. One of them is a noble reason, and the other one's a selfish reason. I favor the selfish, okay? The noble reason that John MacArthur and, and others would say is Numbers 30, verse 2, and this appears also in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. But if a man vows a vow to the Lord, as Jonah has, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, Jonah has. He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all the proceeds out of his mouth. And so, uh, in MacArthur's commentary, he's, he's saying basically that Jonah's just really upset in the moment. He's failed. He knows he's off. He's just angry about everything, but he's kind of at the center of that as well. And so, he knows he's broken a vow. He's not supposed to break this. He needs to do what he said he's going to do. He actually says, I believe it's in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, that the vow that I pledged to you, Lord, the vow that I vowed, I will accomplish. It's right there in Jonah 2. And so MacArthur holds up that maybe a lot of the source of his anger is for a noble reason. And it may be. Except context leads me to believe that it's not. I think he's just selfish. I think that Jonah in this moment is failing to, to please the Lord with his attitude and his character, and I think that that makes total sense if we take that verse and we put it in the context of all the other verses. So this may be the one time where I can publicly say with confidence that I disagree with John MacArthur in, in his commentary. Okay, So I think it, it basically comes down to this. I think he's selfish, and I told you that. Look at Proverbs 19.21. This is another good one. I just think it's great for the church to hold on to. So I want you to see it. Proverbs 19.21. I think ultimately this all comes down that, that Jonah cannot accept Jonah 19.21. I'm sorry, Proverbs 19.21. Jonah cannot accept Proverbs 19.21. If you find Jonah 19, you got the wrong Bible. Okay, so Proverbs 19.21. Jonah cannot accept this. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 
I mean, watch that play out through Jonah 1 through 4. All of his plans that he's purposed, and yet God's way stands. So he doesn't want to accept it. What's the result? When we don't get our way, we're angry. He's a man just like you and me, Jonah is, and he is a God who is not like us at all. Praise the Lord. I want to, I want to keep on moving here. I want to give you one more verse for this section. Go to Luke 15, because we've been referring to the prodigal son quite a bit in Jonah. And we've looked at, at repentance and what repentance is, and it brings the, the young son back to the father who welcomes him. But there's, an, there's the rest of the story as well. So Luke 15, 25 through 32 is the older son. Now his older son, picking up on the prodigal son, who's, who's wasted everything, he's run, run back to his father, his father's run to him, his father's called for a huge celebration. Now his older son, in Luke 15, 25, was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And y'all look at 31 and 32. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jonah, do you do, you do well to be angry, Jonah? They were dead and they were about to be destroyed. They were about to be wiped from existence. And now the mercy and the grace that you've experienced has been visited upon them. Do you have the right to be angry? That's kind of the heart of that question, I believe. Section 2 picks up. Verses 5 through 9. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of that city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, y'all listen for the, the phrase. Now, the Lord God appointed a plan that may, and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Just a couple of things here. So Jonah sees the repentance of the Ninevites, and then he goes out to the east of the city. And, and he's either going, I, I'm, I think he's probably hoping that maybe there's one more shot. Like he's going to see what's going to happen to the city. But he might also just be going out there to sulk too. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I sulk whenever I don't get my way. All right? So he's out there. He builds a, a quick, quick shade or a, a quick shelter that he can sit in. And then y'all look at the language. Verse 6, the Lord, what? Lord God appointed, appointed a plant. And he made it to grow up over Jonah. Verse 7, but when dawn, uh, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant. And then it withered. In verse 8, when the sun rose, God 
appointed a scorching east wind to completely kill that plant and take it away. I mean, there's something, something pretty interesting uh, whenever you start reading Scripture and not trusting man's wisdom that we see that God has absolute control and power and authority to do whatever he wants to do. In this case, he sees Jonah sitting over here. He knows Jonah's anger. And so what he does for Jonah is he appoints his plant to come up over him. And then God decides to kill the plant. Because God's unjust? Because, because God's cruel? Because God's just kind of poking fun at him? No, I think it's to make a point. And the point really comes to fruition in verses 10 and 11. But you can see that, that God is appointing a lot of things right there, and, they, and Jonah's at the center of them. Y'all, if you and I are just looking at Jonah, then we are going to be looking at someone much like ourselves. Jonah can't cause a plant to grow. He can't nurture it. He can't appoint a worm to, to cause it to die. He can't call the east wind. But if we look at God, then we understand that God is completely different than us. And now look, God sends him a plant, and what is Jonah? Exceedingly glad. I mean, I would be exceedingly glad. All of his anger... I mean, there, there's a shift here. He's angry, and now this plant comes up, and he's no longer, like, tempered in his anger. Like, he's exceedingly glad. So he's rejoicing that this plant is over him, giving him comfort and shade. And it's in his world, there's peace and goodness in this moment. Surely God is for him now, because good. It, I mean, because look, this plant has come up. They, they say just... For those of you who are horticulturists and, you know, what kind of plant could this be? They say it's probably a castor oil plant. I know nothing about plants except that they die. Okay. Which is exactly what happens to Jonah's plant. But this also shows us this, how irrational Jonah is. It shows us the irrationality that, that he has in that he cares more for this plant than he does for the people. Okay. Think about an ecosystem. You, you got your, your chain, and the, the highest of the, of the chain is, you know, the, the top predator, the apex predator. And then usually at the bottom of that chain, somewhere around the bottom is you get a plant. They're at the, now, they're crucial to that eco, ecosystem. You need that plant. It's vital, but it's not the most important. And yet here goes Jonah saying that that plant is more important than those people. So it's just irrational, and I think God is showing him that. He cares about a plant more than anybody else. And so I want you to, to consider that language before we go into section three. That in Jonah's distress and frustration that's self-induced, by the way, God brings him blessings. Like God appoints this plant. And you and I need to understand that the blessings in our lives are, I'm not trying to moralize this, I'm just trying to put this in perspective, that, that the blessings in our life are never meant for us to be able to neglect the mission of the Lord. So God's using this plant as a way to really highlight to Jonah, look, I do all things. You're not in control of what's going on. This is a blessing to you right now, but it's also an object lesson to you that I'm in control of the situation and you are not. And so the blessing that Jonah experiences is all in God's control. And I think that you and I can glean from that that the blessings that he's given us are all by his appointing and by his goodness. What we tend to do is to take the good things of God and make them God things, and therefore they become idols. And those idols control our emotions and our perspective. And so we've got to be careful. And that ties all the way back to, remember, Jonah chapter 2. He says that those who hope in idols forsake the loving kindness of the Lord. And we see a picture of that played out here. I want to go on to, to the last section, Jonah 4, verse 10 and 11. 
And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which, y'all check this out, you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And this is the perfect way for the book to end. It has to end this way. It's perfect. Why? Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says this, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. If God has breathed out Scripture, if we're reading Jonah and we get to 4, chapter 4, verse 11, and we're like, it's not right, it's not the way to end, then we got to go back and we have to remember that this was penned, it was written, as God's holy men, moved by His Holy Spirit, was intended to be ended. Therefore, being God-breathed, it's perfect. That's number one. Number two, it establishes the contrast between Jonah and the Lord in many ways. And I've already laid those out. Right? If we just put it in perspective, though, we see this. That at the beginning of Jonah 4, Jonah is angry that the Lord would extend salvation in Nineveh, but the Lord is compassionate and delights to extend salvation. That where Jonah pities a plant, God pities people. There where Jonah cannot call a plant into existence, God has created the Ninevites by his, like for his own purpose, he has sustained them. And Jonah didn't even sustain the plant. It dies whenever a wind that God calls, it dies whenever that wind hits it. And yet God, for some reason, has sustained, like there's a deep contrast between men and God. And it's laid out perfectly in Jonah 10 and 11. Everything that Jonah did not create and nurture or cause in the, the plant's growth, God has done for all of creation. He is higher and mightier than anything that you and I can even begin to imagine. And y'all, he cares for us. And he cares for the lost. So I look at it in this way. I look at, at verse 11 and I get this. These are my thoughts. What pity must a holy creator God have for the people that he knit together in their mother's womb? and then to see them destined, and destined for destruction in hell. I mean, the Assyrians might have been against Israel, but all Scripture is clear that all life comes from God. And he knit them together in their mother's womb. And to see them on a path of destruction and destined and delighting in hell, what pity must go through that God? And what pity must a father have for a son or daughter who has set themselves on a path of destruction and heartache, what would that father and God do? He would desire and strive to see them saved. And I think that that's what we see a glimpse of in 10 and 11. The unanswered question is already answered in the fact that God is very present and in the very character of God. Should I not pity them? Absolutely, because you desire all to be saved. You are gracious and merciful. You are forgiving if any would turn to you. And you are just. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 told us, remember, that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, this is what a father would do. God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin. So God was gracious and patient, abounding in steadfast love and forgiving to the Ninevites and to Jonah and to you and me, Christians. 
We might think that we're a lot more like Jonah than we care to think, but we're a lot more like the Ninevites than we care to acknowledge sometimes too. No, no, Ricky, they were, they were ruthless. They hated God's people. They didn't want to be with him. Will you turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10? It's our final verse of the day. What God did in the life of Jonah, he does through you and me. And Christians, what God did in the nation uh, of Nineveh, he has done for us as well. Here's what scripture says about who we were and who we are. And we do know that their repentance was true because in, in Matthew, and I believe it's Luke, in Matthew and Luke, and I told you this in another sermon, I just want you to know that their repentance is true. Jesus holds up their repentance, the repentance of Nineveh, as a comparison against the religion of the Pharisees. And he says, they stand against you. In other words, the Ninevites, you know what Pharisees, the Ninevites got it. And I relented of my disaster. And Pharisees, you're not getting it. Church, Jonah 1 through 4, the story of an imperfect prophet proclaiming about a perfect God who is ready to save. And you and I are a lot like those Ninevites. So praise the Lord that the Jonah who was sent to us did not relent. And praise the Lord that God would continue to working on our behalf. Why? Because he desires that all be saved and reach repentance. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says this. Paul, writing to believers, reminds them and us of this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Tell me we weren't like Nineveh. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why would he do that? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, church, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why does it hang on that unanswered question? Because it's been completely answered. Of course he should have pity because it's in his very nature to love and extend kindness and grace and to see all reach repentance. So I think our response to this, and you can grab here, here, and here is, praise the Lord that when we were Ninevites, he saved us. Praise the Lord that he did not relent and visit our iniquity on us, but in Christ forgave us. Because of his goodness, because of his kindness, because of his mercy, and because of his grace. What Israel knew to be true in the beginning, we know to be true now, and we will know it forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for the book of Jonah. It makes me uncomfortable. I love the book of Jonah, but it makes me uncomfortable because, because I tend to see a lot of Jonah and that spirit of, spirit of disobedience in myself, even as a Christian. But Lord, I also see the reality, too, that, that the nation of Nineveh, Lord, you, you preached to the Gentiles even then and grafted them in, a fullness we would not know until Christ. Lord, all of those are pictures of a holy creator God dealing graciously with his creation rather than just outright destroying them and calling them in. Lord, thank you for your grace towards Jonah and the Ninevites. But God, thank you so much for your grace towards us. May we never cease to marvel that our God would come for us, would take on flesh and die, would bleed and be pierced for our transgressions, so that the stripes by which you bled would heal us. Lord God, we are your people because you have made us your own, and we love you. Amen.